The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I'm Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we have got ourselves a Twitter thread today. This is one from James Lavish. He has the uh, Informationist Substack, and I've read, I've read something from the newsletter, from his newsletter once, maybe, maybe twice. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like I, I definitely have read something by James um, sometime recently. I'll dig into the feed and grab the link. So it should be in the show notes. But I just thought this was a really great kind of point by point, big picture look, a big, big picture view at what is happening with the global reserve currency status and the shifting monetary and political allegiances that are happening in the world um, without a whole lot of extra stuff, just kind of like this happened, this is this is shifting, these are the trends, and just kind of painting the whole picture. And then also investigating how Bitcoin might be fitting into this. And this is just something that I think a lot about, especially as we go through, you know, 2008 part two, because I think we're in an environment where so many, so much of the monetary system has been trying to shift away from dependence on the dollar and where alternatives and infrastructure and allegiances were not set up back in 2008 because it was just assumed everything was fine and the dollar was just going to work forever. Now all of these things are in place. And I don't think we get away with this again without a really, really huge shift in the geopolitical dynamic. So as numerous things on the show, we've covered this idea from a couple of different angles, but it's just something I want to keep our finger on, so to speak. Um, and it's good to kind of reassess the the small movements that have happened in between and kind of look at the big picture and see, is this still happening? Is there a clearer result that we can begin to see from this? And how is the dynamic shifting? But James didn't really give the Twitter thread itself a title, so I'm just calling it Bricks, the Dollar, and a Multipolar World. So really quick, let's thank our sponsors, and then we will jump in. A huge thank you to Fold and the Fold debit card for giving me sats back on everything in my life. I wish, I hope that you can understand the feeling of just watching the amount of sats that you have grow for paying your bills. It's something very special, and I encourage you to check out bitcoinaudible.com fold if you have not experienced it. Then you're going to want to experience the comfort the confidence of knowing that you are automatically buying Bitcoin and it is automatically going to your keys with Swan Bitcoin. Not to mention the incredible onboarding service, the endless resources on any topic and any idea or analysis around Bitcoin that you could think of. Swan is just the place to get into Bitcoin. Check them out at swanbitcoin.com guy. That's my special link. And then lastly, you got to get yourself some hardware, some top-notch Bitcoin security devices from CoinKite. 
And speaking of experiences, I want you to experience NFC. I want you to experience taking a tap signer and just tapping it to your phone to sign a transaction. I don't know why I like it so much, but it just feels right. Also, a free shout out to Nunchuck Wallet because that's the one I use with my multi-sig with the two tap signers and the cold card. Nunchuck is a really, really great mobile wallet. No sponsorship, just just wholesome recommendation. And it works really well with uh, CoinKite products. Granted, cold card is practically integrated with all the good wallets. And you can get 9% off with code Bitcoin Audible. The extremely convenient links are all right there for you in the description. And with that, let's get into today's read by James Lavish, a Twitter thread titled Bricks, the Dollar, and a Multipolar World, a thread by James Lavish. You may have heard the term BRICS recently and how this group of countries has taken issue with the U.S. dollar. But what exactly, or should I say who exactly, are the BRICS and can they really topple the U.S. dollar? Time for a U.S. dollar thread. What is BRICS? First things first, BRICS is just an acronym for a group of countries seeking to form their own economic cooperation a non-Western-centric block, you might say. These countries are currently Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. BRICS. The term BRIC was originally coined by Goldman Sachs economist Jim O'Neill in 2001, and when South Africa joined in 2010, it became BRICS. See, BRICS wants to break away from the need to hold and transact in USD. They're looking to do this for various reasons, but two are clear. One, by continuing to use U.S. dollars as the primary medium of exchange, these countries continue to feed the U.S. economic engine at the expense of their own economic growth. Two, needing U.S. dollars for transactions forces these countries to hold reserves of U.S. dollars and U.S. treasuries as reserve assets. And... There are two reasons they want to opt out of U.S. treasuries. One, when the U.S. sanctioned Russia last year, freezing their U.S. treasuries and shutting them out from SWIFT, the worldwide money transfer system, the U.S. demonstrated authoritarian control over any U.S. dollar asset held in foreign treasuries. And two, the U.S. treasury has repeatedly printed U.S. dollar to buy its own debt during times of crisis, and this has expanded the money supply and induced perpetual inflation. Hence, the U.S. dollar is worth less every single year, and anyone holding U.S. treasuries or U.S. dollars loses purchasing power. Pretty good reasons to opt out of the U.S. dollar, actually. Instead, the BRICS alliance would like to either agree to transact in their own currencies or adopt a European-style model, where one currency, like the Chinese Yuan, is the primary medium of exchange between all of them. And so now, we are hearing increased rumblings like this. Financial Times tweet, Brazil's Lula calls for end to dollar trade dominance. The leftist president lends his voice to Beijing's efforts to boost renminbi's role in global commerce. But how exactly can BRICS accomplish this? Simple, really. They all migrate away from holding U.S. treasuries and turn to other assets, like each other's currencies, gold or Bitcoin, and begin convincing others to do the same. 
Evidence of this already occurring came recently when the United Arab Emirates, the UAE, settled a large LNG, or natural gas, trade with China, which was done in, wait for it, Chinese yuan. Well, well. Sounds ominous for the US dollar when also considering the chart below. The GDP of BRICS countries recently surpassed the total GDP of the G7 countries. Uh-oh. The question then becomes, could BRICS cause the US dollar to lose status as the global reserve currency? But to answer that, we must first ask, can BRICS unseat the US Treasury as the global reserve asset? From BRICS to BRICS. Let's be honest, US Treasury's dominance as global reserve asset, while not exactly on the ropes, is in decline. There's many reasons for this, but the past few years have not been kind to the U.S. Treasury. I.e., in response to U.S. sanctions, Russia sold their U.S. Treasuries, China has been unwinding theirs, Japan has reduced U.S. Treasuries to stabilize their own currency, etc. As a result, foreign ownership of U.S. Treasuries has decreased significantly as a percentage of total holders over the last decade. And, no surprise, the U.S. dollar is headed in the same direction. The first chart shows major foreign holders of treasury securities and shows that around the 2009-2010 era, it was about 50% of all public debt and it has fallen to the latest on the chart in 2021 at 30%. The other chart shows the US dollar share of official foreign exchange reserves, which was at 72% back in 2001 and has fallen all the way down to 59% in 2022. And to put this in context, the lost share is not going to the euro, the British pound, or the yen. It is going to, quote, other currencies, which includes the Chinese yuan. First, let's be clear. Take another peek at the above chart. The currency composition of global foreign exchange reserves by percentage. 59% is the US dollar. 21% is the euro. 10% is other. 6% is the yen, and 5% is the British pound. There are hundreds of currencies in the world, and the US dollar is still by far the dominant medium of exchange. Nothing is even close. But this very dominance is causing certain countries to seek a way to be less dependent on the US dollar and the US treasury, to extract themselves from the whims and needs of a central bank that lives a world away from their own economy, yet still finds a way to dominate it. And so, as more countries seek to escape the U.S. grip, we find other countries applying for membership to the BRICS alliance. The two most recent inquiries came from Iran and Saudi Arabia. Iran is no surprise. But wait, you say the same Saudi Arabia that agreed to settle virtually all their oil trades in U.S. dollars since we left the gold standard in the early 70s? Yes, one and the same. The resulting cooperative would be dubbed BRICS, B-R-I-I-C-S-S. Problem is, they have no single currency they can all rely on, read trust, for denominating an asset in, i.e. a U.S. treasury. And unlike the U.S. Treasury, a mega yacht with a leaky hull, they must find a way to denominate in something they can all transact in 
that will also hold its value. The obvious and overwhelmingly popular choice today? You got it. Gold. And Bitcoin? Let's look at what's recently happening there next. BRICS Plus and the Prisoner's Dilemma Lo and behold, it seems Russia, China, India, and Turkey have been buying gold like it's the most important asset to have in their reserves. More important than the U.S. Treasury, in fact. The result? And here he shows a 30-year chart of the net purchases or sales of gold by central banks. And what throughout the 90s and early 2000s had been net sales turned to net purchases in 2009 with an overwhelming spike of net purchases at the end of the chart in 2022. Good Lord, that is more gold buying than we have seen since the 1960s. I mean, central banks had been net sellers of gold throughout all the 1990s and early 2000s. Of course, the WEF sugarcoats reality here, reasoning that central banks have been using gold to balance reserves and diversify portfolios. But let's look at what really happened. It's clear that this reversal in sentiment occurred right after the Great Financial Crisis. You know, that little global financial meltdown event that required central banks to step in and rescue companies? Rescue banks? Translated, they printed metric shit-tons of their respective currencies and flooded markets with them to ensure the charade, the whole cynical clown show, continues. Remember, printing money equals debasement, and debasement equals the loss of purchasing power. To protect against this loss of purchasing power, central banks have been buying, er, loading up, on gold. It's entirely possible that these countries and others have been also loading up on or eyeing the possibility of using Bitcoin for an additional reserve asset and or medium of exchange. After all, it's easier to exchange and cheaper to move than gold. It's instantly verifiable for audit purposes, and most importantly, it cannot be frozen or seized. Seems like a natural progression, actually. And if you have been watching the hash rate of Bitcoin, you've noticed that it has exploded this past year. Translated for Bitcoin beginners, more computers are being plugged in to mine Bitcoin. It's pure speculation that the majority of these Bitcoin miners are coming from China. I know, I know, they banned mining last year. And Russia. It'd be pretty easy to hide a few million ASICs in Siberia. But it would seem to make sense, wouldn't it? Okay, back to the main discussion here and the expansion of BRICS, which may become BRICS, B-R-I-I-C-S-S, or BRICS plus Iran and Saudi Arabia. Then what? Will more countries seek to join? Could we see BRICS plus? To put it simply, any country who is on the geopolitical relationship fringe with the United States may soon find themselves in an awkward situation. A dilemma. A prisoner's dilemma, you may even say. If you've never analyzed game theory and the prisoner's dilemma, here's how it works. Say we have two countries, country A and country B. Each country has two choices. Maintain its current U.S. dollar alliance, cooperate, or join BRICS in the hopes of challenging the U.S. dollar system. Defect. There are four possible outcomes of a prisoner's dilemma. 1. Both countries cooperate and maintain U.S. dollar holdings. In this scenario, both countries continue to rely on the U.S. dollar as a global reserve currency and the status quo is maintained. 
the U.S. dollar remains dominant. 2. Both countries defect, join BRICS. If both countries reduce U.S. dollar dependence in favor of a BRICS system, they collectively challenge the U.S. dollar's dominance. This leads to a reduction in demand for U.S. dollar-denominated assets, read U.S. Treasuries, an increased probability that BRICS succeeds. 3. Country A cooperates and Country B defects. In this case, Country B benefits from diversifying its reserves and potentially profiting from price appreciation of gold or Bitcoin, while Country A continues to rely on the U.S. dollar. Country B's move could still negatively impact the U.S. dollar, but the effect would likely be smaller than if both countries shifted their holdings. Neither country fully benefits. BRICS likely ultimately fails. Or four, country A defects and country B cooperates. This scenario is just the reverse of outcome three with the same result. Put simply, it would take a massive and seismic shift in behavior and significant transfer of assets to gold and or Bitcoin for BRICS to succeed, in my opinion. Could it happen? Sure, it's absolutely a possibility, and more than a non-zero probability. Could BRICS Plus lead to hyper-Bitcoinization? Back to game theory and challenging the U.S. Treasury as the global reserve asset. While gold is a trusted, non-U.S. Treasury store of value, and has been for centuries, it's still not ideal, especially in this digital day and age, and is unlikely the world ever fully returns to the gold standard. But then, there is Bitcoin. Decentralized, trustless, easily divisible, and easily transferred, Bitcoin's properties are like gold that has evolved into the digital age. Of course, there's additional base layer protocol benefits, but today let's look at Bitcoin as a store of value and means of exchange. Let's suppose that the BRICS countries ultimately turned to Bitcoin as the main reserve asset of their currencies, or a collective currency like a Bitcoin-backed yuan. Then if BRICS becomes BRICS+, plus, then the United States will find itself in its own version of the prisoner's dilemma. In short, the U.S. will have to decide whether to adopt Bitcoin as part of its national reserves and cooperate, or maintain the status quo and defect. Using the U.S. and BRICS Plus as the two players in this game, there are four possible outcomes. 1. Both the U.S. and BRICS Plus cooperate. They adopt Bitcoin. The U.S. dollar becomes backed by Bitcoin, and though Bitcoin becomes the global reserve asset, the U.S. dollar remains the global reserve currency. 2. Both the U.S. and BRICS Plus defect, maintain the status quo. Neither the U.S. nor BRICS countries adopt Bitcoin, and the current reserve asset landscape remains unchanged. The U.S. Treasury remains the global reserve asset for now, and the U.S. dollar remains the global reserve currency. 3. The U.S. adopts Bitcoin, and the BRICS Plus does not. The U.S. benefits from Bitcoin price appreciation and diversification of its reserves. The U.S. dollar remains the global reserve currency. BRICS Plus ultimately fails. Or 4. The U.S. maintains the status quo, and the BRICS Plus adopt Bitcoin. Demand for Bitcoin increases, leading to price appreciation and decreased volatility. This results in a weakened U.S. dollar 
and reduced demand for U.S. Treasuries, especially as more and larger energy purchases are settled in Bitcoin. The U.S. dollar risks losing its dominance as the global reserve currency. The ultimate and most dangerous for the U.S. outcome of this scenario is hyper-Bitcoinization, or Bitcoin rapidly replacing all fiat currencies as the primary medium of exchange, unit of account, and store of value. So, from the U.S. perspective, the danger of not adopting Bitcoin is most evident in Scenario 4. This is the only scenario where the U.S. dollar is most at risk of being toppled as global reserve currency and hyper-Bitcoinization occurs. Do I think this will happen? I do believe it is an eventuality. But I also believe this is a long way off. I mean decades and decades. Do I think the expansion of BRICS and that cooperative expanding will cause this eventuality? Will BRICS be the so-called trigger? Put simply, no. I believe the countries that make up BRICS are too unstable themselves individually to form a strong enough partnership with enough trust to threaten the U.S. hegemony, at least for the foreseeable future. And I believe the U.S. government and officials believe the very same. They are not worried about BRICS toppling the U.S. Treasury, and they are not concerned with hyper-Bitcoinization. Yet. And so I maintain that the most likely scenario, which is also far off in the future, is that Bitcoin becomes the ultimate global store of value, and the U.S. dollar remains the global medium of exchange. Buy and sell in U.S. dollars. Save in Bitcoin. But that's me and my point of view. And that's why I maintain and continue to add to my position of Bitcoin as a long, long, long-term holding. And when I say long-term, I mean forever. This thread is a summary of a recent informationist newsletter. There's a free version you can check out here with a link included. And that wraps up the thread from James Lavish, and he has got a link to his Substack. If you want to check it out, that will be in the uh, show notes as well. But you'll see it right there in the description. Really quick, let's hit our sponsor, and then I want a guy's take on this piece. I have 21 million sats, which is around $6,300. At the current Bitcoin price, it's about 28000 And I didn't buy it. I have 0.21 Bitcoin that I did not purchase. I got it in sats back on a debit card from just buying groceries, paying my bills, paying the utilities, paying off credit cards through the PayPal bill pay, and through using gift cards that get you 2, 3, 7% back at some services like Amazon, DoorDash, Instacart, Uber. If you're traveling, you're going to the Bitcoin 2023, get 10% off with code Bitcoin Audible, by the way. You can get airline tickets and uh, Uber all wherever you're going and use gift cards with the fold card and get 3% of whatever you're spending back in Bitcoin. Seriously, if you have to use fiat, get paid sats to do it. Go to bitcoinaudible.com fold. That is my link and it helps out the show. If you aren't doing this, if you're not using the fold card or the gift cards or the app, just getting a daily spin, you're missing a really serious low-hanging fruit on stacking a ton of sats. So here's the most important thing, is I don't think 
I, like it's, I think it's easy to get lost in the look at how big this is versus this and just seeing how tied in one thing is versus another. Because if you look at just the U.S., if you look at the chart without any context or without any history and you see that the dollar is 59% of global reserves and global trade, then it appears as if there is no competitor, that there's, there's essentially nothing to be done about it. And I think it's easy to get lost in that. I think the arrogance of the United States political environment and the political class is based on that simple fact. Looking at that out of context or just looking at that flatly as this is my power and so that they can do unbelievably irresponsible and stupid things from a financial standpoint and from a monetary standpoint that is literally screwing other countries that is just siphoning off trillions of dollars worth of resources out of those countries and funneling it back into the United States. The privilege of being able to export your inflation to the whole world when had we printed $6 trillion and it had stayed wholly within the United States economy, the inflation would have been absolutely overwhelming. Look how bad it was, despite the fact that we were able to export it to the entire world. What I think is most important, especially because these trends can get out of hand quickly, and more importantly, reversing these types of trends is so hard. It's like when an avalanche starts to move and thinking that you're going to be able to stop it and push it back up the mountain. The amount of adjustment, the amount of changing of behavior and mentality about these things and how much the political class has to actually be even entertain the idea of being responsible or being restrained in the power that they execute against both the people of the United States and internationally. It has to change so much so quickly to reverse this trend that if we're looking, if we just look at the trajectory, the U.S. dollar is not looking pretty. And it just doesn't matter how big you are if every single year you are smaller. And in doing that, you abuse all of the positions simply because you're still the big dog. You keep abusing your situation and abusing the power and control that it enables by owning essentially the world monetary infrastructure, which is exactly what sows the distrust and makes everybody so afraid of, having, of, of constantly being tied to that system. When that system is used as a weapon instead of a means to facilitate trade globally and safely, then thinking that will keep it, that the, the control and the actual execution of the abuse of the system will keep it the center of global trade is so profoundly arrogant and stupid. And yet, that is exactly what we are doing. In fact, we are doubling down on exactly that. And then in the exact same time, they are having to do two conflicting policies, two conflicting actions at the exact same time. We're having to bail out all the banks and bail out all of the depositors and pretend we're just printing trillions and trillions of dollars while at the same time raising interest rates to try to put pressure to keep people tied to their dollar denominated debts. And that, I think, is really one of the big problems. 
is that the debt is actually trapping people. Because if you owe a million dollars and you owe it at, you know, 5% interest, well, then no matter what you do, you are a demand for the dollar because you need 5%, you need $50,000 every single year just to maintain that debt. And you need even more if you ever intend to pay off that debt. And so when the global monetary system has just incredible amounts of debt that nobody can actually afford because it was manipulated to lower interest rates so that everyone went into debt that they specifically could not afford. It was just pushed well below any sort of sense of balance. And so you have this massive ballooning in debt. Well, now everybody is dependent on this. Everybody is tied to the U.S. dollar system doubly so. Because all of their net, all of their debt is denominated in dollars, and they never actually could afford it. Nobody could afford any of this debt. In fact, over and over again, we proved it by only paying off or s- switching out of the previous debt arrangement by refinancing at a lower interest rate more later on to get out of the p- previous cycle. It's exactly, it's, it's kind of the, the global international central bank and nation state version of remortgaging your house or refinancing your house as the interest rate goes down and the price of the house goes up. It appears as if everybody's getting rich. You know, you buy a house for $100,000 when the market actually had some degree of sense in it. And then suddenly it's worth $200,000. It's worth $300,000. And your original interest rate was like 7%, 8%, something again somewhat reasonable in the cost of consuming a house and taking this off the market from other people, a thing that we have not yet produced. You have to pay for the time in which you have consumed something that you've never earned. And so you had 7% interest. You had an 8% interest on your mortgage. But then the mortgage rates go down. They go down to 5%. They go down to 4%. They go down to 3%. And shocker, The price of your house goes to $200,000, $300,000, $500,000. Of course, these two things are not related. It's simply that we all got rich because houses just skyrocket in value. A a 20-year-old house that's degraded and needs new shingles and has a little bit of rot around the corners and some of the siding is falling off is clearly worth four times what it was originally worth when it was built. And so what do we do? We refinance. We got to get that lower interest rate. We got to pull some cash out. And we've been stuck in this cycle for decades of just accumulating more debt to handle the cost of our previous debts. But here's the thing. The U.S. is broke. We are essentially defaulting on our debt. Of course, they're not openly admitting it, but that's what happens when you're just printing trillions of dollars constantly. You're simply defaulting on your money in order to prevent the facade of defaulting on the debt. So here's why I think this can actually unfold a little bit faster, maybe, than... I'm not so sure about the... Like, I really enjoy... I'm a big fan of that informationist, by the way. James James Lavish's uh, substack is really good. But I'm not 100% sure about this multiple decades timeline. Because the problem is, is that not only is everybody tied into the dollar system with debt, but the U.S. government is the largest debtor. They are the ones who owe all of this debt, and they can't afford any of it. We can't, we can barely afford the interest charges, and interest rates are going up, and we're having to borrow more every year 
just to handle, just to turn over debt that has already is in the process of expiring. Not to mention dealing with another larger deficit than last year, which was the same the year before and the year before going back God knows how long. And tax revenues just came in way under what they thought it was going to be. Which means that, or at least in my thinking, the only way for the institution with the largest amount of debt out there, denominated in dollars, they also happen to have the printing presses. The U.S. government is going to pay off its debt by printing dollars. And there is essentially no other option. Like, the situation... I think we've just become totally desensitized to the idea of thinking about government debt as a problem because government debt hasn't been a problem for like a generation. But these, these imbalances simply play out over the course of decades, which means it makes perfect sense that we would have that perspective. It's like, well, it's always been that way. No, it's only been that way for like 30, 40, 50 years now, I realize that's enough for multiple generations to just believe that this is the way the world works. But it's nothing on the broader monetary timescales. It's actually pretty short in the realm of large societal debt shifts. And there's never been a single one in history that ever defied reality, in which the debt kept growing and it didn't end in total disaster. There's just not one. There's not a single example the debt means something real. It means that we are consuming more resources than we produce. Just think about that in your life, in your car. Like just think about it. You're using up gas faster than you're putting gas in the car. What happens? The car stops. You're consuming more food in the house than you're bringing in. You run out of food. More things are falling apart on your house than you're repairing. It doesn't matter if it's a slow trend and it takes 30 years. Eventually, that house is just going to be totally broken. None of these things can go on forever because axiomatically what they mean. It is as unavoidable as gravity. And yet we pretend otherwise that you can just paper over this, that you can just cook the books, you can just screw with the accounting practices, and we can just Enron our way out of this situation. But we can't. And if the U.S. government is broke, their only option is to either become the most, suddenly, the most fiscally conservative, responsible, and restrained institution in the world in order to counteract being the worst, the polar opposite, refusing the, to pay all the social security and the pensions that they can't afford because they can't afford, they can't afford the status quo. They can't afford no change whatsoever. But they've made promises decades and decades out. So every year it gets worse and worse and worse if they do nothing. But they just like to tack on a whole extra deficit just for fun and just, just make it bigger every single time. So if they're not going to cut the budget and just cut 90% of the government out so that the thing is actually sustainable and runs some sort of a surplus and renege on every one of their promises and all of the subsidies and the special interests, uh, payouts and contractors, if they aren't going to do that, the only thing they can do is print their way out of it, which means that the strength of, or at least in my mind, the strength of the dollar will be indirectly, arguably directly tied to 
the interest payment, and the deficit of the U.S. government. But as trust starts to break down, it generally accelerates, especially in a big system. But then there's the countervailing force of if other countries begin to actually attempt to pay off debt or people in the economy attempt to pay off debt, you actually run the risk of deflation. And then the same with outright default is the debt basically gets cleared off the books. So what appeared like money on a lot of bank balance sheets just vanishes into thin air because the overwhelming majority of money is created, all new money is created as a loan. It begins its life as a debt, which means paying it back destroys the money from the system. So there's going to, I, I just imagine we're probably going to have these like wild swings between, well, I mean, geez, what we're, what we're seeing right now, just bank collapse and really volatile inflation. But we can actually go through like really heavy deflationary spikes, or at least you could if you had a lot of banks fail and essentially their books gets wiped out, like you actually have defaulting. But if the government is just in there insuring all deposits and they just end up loaning JP Morgan or Citigroup or whoever, Bank of America, more money in order to just buy up the other bank and there's just this this constant accounting fraud to make it appear as if nothing's wrong and nothing changed so that people are just kind of going about their day-to-day lives without imagining as if there are no consequences to this stuff. Being able to live that fantasy because, again, we're just in-running our way out of this. Well, then it all comes to a head with the currency. It'll be in, I mean, I just went to the grocery store the other day and we got six bags. And it's not like we got the cheapest stuff on the shelves, like I, I get nice food, but six bags. And it was $430. Those paper bags don't even hold that much. You know, after there's like a couple of heavy things in there, they got to get a new one. But like everything, it's just like things are casually $10. Like that's just a normal thing to see now. I remember when like you, you had a lot of $2 and $4 things. I don't see that anymore. In fact, not even eggs. And I wish it was more obvious to people that it, that it was clear that this is the price of all the debt burden that we can't afford. And it's just right now. Not the stuff promised for next year. We're going to feel that next year. Somewhere, the difference is going to be made. Whether it's in the amount of products and services that you have available to to you, whether it's in the collapsing value of your house, or the loss of jobs, or the skyrocketing value of the house, along with the skyrocketing price of all of your groceries, or the increasing centralization of the entire banking and financial system. The difference simply has to be made somewhere. And it's no longer being dumped on foreign nations. They have stopped participating. We had done that for a really long time. And it made it very, very comfortable when you could have a whole lot of other people pay for your debts and deficits. But when we have to pay all of it, suddenly it's not so good a deal. But all the breakdown in the culture, the insane divisiveness of politics... The, the, net, the toxic bigness of all of these corporations that seem to be doing nothing good for society. This is the cost. Now, I think it's useful here when we're talking about like how fast the dollar or uh, the yuan or Bitcoin or gold, how fast these things can change is probably to just look at 
how fast global reserve currencies have shifted hands um, and how, how fast they have shifted percentages. Because it's not only that a collapse in one currency uh, can, cause, uh, can cause that shift, but also a, a growth in somewhere that is gaining a lot of productivity or new, moving into kind of a new industrial age. Like the developing world is a great example of something that is set to springboard 20 to 30 years worth of technological uh, innovation and infrastructure adoption and things that the West has been or had access to for a long time that essentially most of the developing world has not been able to achieve. And the speed that their situation can change as they get out from underneath the thumb of like the CIFA Frank system, out from under the IMF debt trap. And I think there's a lot of the small countries are really what can benefit the most because they're used to being uh, really small fish in a big pond. And so if they attempt to have their own national currency, then they just get smashed because it's like having a rowboat next to the Titanic. These currencies are competing with each other, and the degree of the, the degree that they affect each other is directly tied to their liquidity. So when the dollar is this, this mountain, this, this absolute titanic of liquidity and availability and everything, and its interest rate is fluctuating on multiple continents. And then you just have this like one little country and worse, you're a developing country, which means you don't even have much li liquidity in the country because the country starts out poor. Well, then just the tiniest fluctuation in dollar interest rates like literally makes or breaks your economy because you're having to trade against that. Now, the beauty of a global independent currency and what we've seen with Bitcoin in particular in smaller countries in Africa and in South America the benefit is that they actually join together in their liquidity and their monetary influence. And they are opting into an open source system. So they're, without even being politically, needing to be politically aligned in any particular way, in the sense of culture or religion or uh, governmental organization, they can still be monetarily, they can be fiscally aligned and financially aligned by tethering themselves to Bitcoin, and they suddenly end up, they make their own pond. They pool, they become a school of fish rather than just individual fish in a big pond. And the efforts of each individual country benefits all of the others because it's technology, because it's completely global. So they don't need the dollar rails to get from country to country. They can talk directly when they're using an open source global network. And then the feedback loop of value that goes into that because it's being monetized, when Bitcoin rips, Bitcoin rips. It, it builds up this ton of pressure as the network and the, the technology itself expands and its trust builds and people look at it a second and third times. Maybe they still haven't bought it yet, but they're still just waiting for that signal. They're waiting to make it to see its growth come back. And as, it watch, as they watch it survive for another year, another two years, just, and just refusing to die. I think its persistence changes the way people think about it. And even people who have ignored it or attacked it, they, they entertain just a little bit easier the next year, particularly as things get scarier or the situation gets worse in another currency. 
they, they go back and they think one more time, maybe, maybe I could actually get some of this. And the feedback loop of that of a currency that can't be exploited in the sense that if demand increases and then you have another event or another growth phase that catches 10 times as many people's attention who saw it last time but were sure it wasn't going to last, the supply of the currency cannot increase to account for those new people. The only thing that happens is the network itself grows. The price and the value grows. And I don't want to seem naive, but that can happen very fast. You know, if you look historically on like, like kind of what the time scale is for major shifts, like, you know, doublings and halvings in the global reserve currency space, like you go back to the 19. 19- 10s, 20s, when it was the British pound, and then the dollar kind of broke into the scene in the 20s, and then it shifted back to the British pound, and then back to the US dollar. Like Global reserve currency status does shift quite a bit as trends or new players are making their way, or some giant war is shifting the balance of power, or the economic productivity gauge enough to, to have you know, causal long-term influence. There's lots of shifts that happened in the range of 10 years, like really big shifts. Like the British pound went from in the 40s, I think it was over the 30s. Um, I don't know, but it was about, I think it was like maybe the late 20s to the late 30s. So in roughly a 10 year period, um, it went from 30% to 60%. So it doubled its portion and became the dominant during that period, during a 10-year period. Then another example, the U.S. dollar went from uh, 15% to 50% just over the course of World War I, or about a five- to six-year period right there. And then the shift again back to the U.S. dollar from about the 1950, low 1950s to low 1960s was again a period from about 30% or an amount from about 30% to 60%. So it was a doubling. So all that is to say, especially if, if you have a very volatile political environment and you have a very strong feedback loop and the trend is really going against you and the trend is clear and has been long established, I think a lot can happen in 10 years. Like we're at 59% now, the US dollar could be 20%. While Bitcoin has been normalized at a $1 trillion market cap, it's not that right now, but it is normal for Bitcoin to be a $1 trillion market cap from a mental perspective. There was a day where that was idiotic. Like that was just insane to even suggest. Now it's just we've been there, done that. While Bitcoin has also continued to work reliably in a very volatile political and a very volatile financial environment, It is being adopted and embraced by numerous small countries, and it has a habit of going through growth phases where the price goes many multiples. Then you're also in an environment where the BRICS nations are trying to set up their, essentially, we are in a multipolar world, and the balance of power in the monetary world is shifting, and it is not going to continue, it's not going to shift slower, it's not going to stop, I think we are in flux and we are in the ramp up phase of figuring out where the world is headed. And then there's casual threats of nuclear war between multiple uh, huge political powers on this planet. 
The culture is going nuts and everybody wants everything for free. The debt bubble is blowing up. A, one giant bank collapses about once a month. And now like half the economy isn't sure they're going to have a job in like a year because AI is changing the entire landscape of technology. You put all that in a bowl, you mix it up and you put some Parmesan cheese on top. You give that 10 years and you have no, I have no clue what the world is going to look like. And honestly, to me, none of those futures look good except for the one with Bitcoin. So that's where my cards go. Now, I don't even know if I covered the, all the things that I wanted to talk about in this uh, piece, but it was, it was a really good one and it just kind of got me buzzed like thinking about it just because it's, it's such a crazy thing to just kind of witness these huge shifts that kind of, it seems like, it seems odd to be able to see it when you're living through it. Like that seems like the exception, not the rule. Most people aren't aware of how big these, these huge shifts are occurring while they are living through them. And while obviously I don't know the future and I could be misinterpreting it, it feels like we're seeing one. It really does. So anyway, we'll close that one out here. Thank you to Swan Bitcoin, to Fold, and to CoinKite for making this show possible. And I will catch you on the next episode of Bitcoin Audible. Until then, guys, take it easy. Everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself. Leo Tolstoy This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.